0: Hello, welcome to This Girl Cam, where we chat to brilliant women doing fabulous things in pharma. I'm Liv Nixon, and today I'm chatting to Deborah Whitehouse about the varied career she's enjoyed with GSK. As a senior global commercial leader, Deborah humbly describes her role as helping amazing people do outstanding things for patients. Going straight into GSK out of university, Deb had the opportunity to join a graduate trainee programme, which undoubtedly challenged her, but also gave her the chance to showcase her strengths and potential. And neither she nor GSK have looked back, as nearly 20 years on, she's clearly as passionate and dedicated to her role as the day she started. A fascinating, driven and absolutely lovely lady, I'm delighted to have her on the show. So let's get going. Good morning. Hi, Deb. A massive welcome to the show! Thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited to be here. It's a great way to start my week. Super excited. Okay, so to kick us off, uh, do you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, Yeah, sure. So my name's Deb Whitehouse. The obvious, normal question is: Is it Deb, Debbie, Deborah? So yeah, got an identity crisis on that one, but we'll go with Deb for today. I am a mother of Eloise, so she's three. My husband's Nick. We live in South London. I work. For uh, GSK, I've worked for GSK for the entirety of my career, which is interesting. I joined from university, and at the moment, I'm vice president of a asset in early development, which is fantastic. And we're working in the genital herpes space, so super sexy, but really what? important, <laughs> high demand I'm need, no innovation for a long time. So excited to be doing that. And I've had a very meandering. Varied career at GSK, which is why I'm still there and loving it. So, when looking at your LinkedIn profile, you have a science degree, you did your graduate program at GSK. It looks very much like you always knew this was the path for you, and this was the direction you were going to take. Is that the case? What did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, no, not. What did I want to be when I grew up? I wanted to be a fighter pilot. I'm a massive Top Gun fan. I realized I'm too short and I'm too blind, so it was never going to happen. But that was my dream early on, which then transitioned into wanting to go into medicine and got into med school and through some reflection process decided it wasn't for me, which is quite good because it turns out I'm actually pretty squeamish. So I would have been a terrible doctor. <laughs> but um, went me for to I- throw up. <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so went to university to do biology because i love science i had a great biology teacher who inspired me and so that was where i ended up and as part of my degree i which was a fabulous part of my degree actually i did a four-year degree at bath and there was a placement year and so the way you got your placement year good old-fashioned notice board in the biology labs I kept going down there to look for placements, and just nothing inspired me quite honestly. It was all lab work, microscopes, and it just wasn't for me. I wanted to be around people i just I wanted to find something that that felt exciting and The other thing that I did at university was I organized parties, basically I've always found myself as a social secretary, mm-hmm. and there was a there was a job at Yaster and and actually, author biotech, which is a small part of the industry, and the advert was "come and help us organise congresses for next year." So I thought, "Oh, brilliant! I can definitely do that. That sounds like loads of fun." So applied, and it was a brand executive role, uh, working actually on one of the one of the first really integral new medicines for multiple myeloma. So it was actually to launch Belcade, which is a uh, which has been around for a very long time, an amazing drug. And to organize our attendance at all the hematology conferences and set up the kind of early, early branding work for that. And I absolutely loved it. Like I found like I, I felt like I was at the intersect of biology and then what I soon learned to love, which was business. And actually it turned out that I was quite good at it, which I wasn't expecting. And that was it. So from there onwards it became quite clear that the pharma industry was this beautiful point between using science doing a career where I felt like I could use my brain to help people which was really important to me and I think probably comes back to my earlier kind of ambitions to be in medicine and then business which I I'm enjoying and learning and loving I will always you know I'm always learning actually um, as I've gone through my career so that was how I ended up getting Into pharma and into GSK actually as a backup. So I'd applied, I'd been offered a job at Janssen, and I was like, no, I shouldn't probably go back there. Maybe I should try somewhere different. Applied to the GSK grad scheme a little naively, actually, um, not really knowing much, but because it was a really great grad scheme and got a place. And I was like, okay, I'll go and try that for a bit and just loved it. And the company, actually felt really similar to the experience I'd had at Janssen, Uh, very people-focused, very patient-focused. And so I was like, okay, let's stay. And, um, yeah, I've never had a reason to leave so far. That grad scheme looked fantastic. You got so much different experience, didn't you? You had your your time in the field, then your time in in marketing within, what, five years or something? Yeah, Yeah. it's really good. So it's actually two and a half years. They really cram it in. So, But it gives you a really nice foundational... Experience. So, yeah, so you, as you're right, so did sales, did marketing, did insight work, secondary care, primary care. So, it was a, fa- it was just a really, I'm really, really grateful actually. It was an amazing um, entry point into you know, earning your stripes or kind of building your foundation. It was hard. We it's had to kind present of every six months to the board. So, it's quite difficult. Oh, did you? Oh, yeah. Wow, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, quite scary. Someone early in their career. Yeah, that's, that's true really intimidating yeah. so so from yeah. there which what what was it that that you loved from doing that program that you wanted to take forward with you what did I really what did I really enjoy so I exited the program I'd done a really really great time in the field working for an amazing lady working in respiratory and what I learned in that process was the hugely changing dynamic of the NHS, where we were moving from individual doctors making individual choices based on data and the patient in front of them, and we were starting to move towards population decision-making, and the budget holder was changing, and the role of market access at a regional-local level was becoming... Increasingly important, um, and so I was keen to do some more time in that space um, because I felt like that was, you know, market you know, no longer was marketing in isolation or sales in isolation enough. Account management was critical. Population level uh, decision making was critical. Really good value propositions beyond the clinical data was important, and so I went into a role in the respiratory team as the market access lead and that's that was fantastic actually and we were on a really really big, very high spend drug uh for the n h s and so did a lot of work on pricing value propositions, account management capabilities, working as account teams, all of that kind of stuff so it was it was fantastic. I think it took me beyond the core of brand marketing into a more holistic kind of commercial view on how we on how we sell medicines. Yeah. When you get that chance to look at it through a different lens, it's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. One of the things okay. I pick up on is you're really people-focused, aren't you? You were talking about your biology. You referred to your teacher when you did your time in respiratory and you were talking about that you worked for a really good lady. You, This obviously is important to you in terms of role models or mentors. Is there, Do you think you've had one in particular, sort of a, a mentor or key person? Um, and I oh, suppose I another do. question to add to that would be, do you see your role as that as well within within people that oh. you work with at GSK now? Yeah, huge. Yeah, oh, God, that's a really great question, actually. Yeah, do you know what? I think I am. I, I have learned, interestingly, I've become more people-focused as I've got older. I think when you go into grad programs, you're forced to be an individual contributor and you're forced to be competitive in that because you're you know we were getting ranked every six months you know and and that's great and that forces performance and that forces you to make sure you get on and deliver but sometimes it's a negative connotation because you're you're again you're being ranked against your peers and that's of course how life continues in the corporate world and that's fine but it's less it's less overt and I think I learned after I did my market access role on the respiratory product I went out and was a second line sales leader in the east of England And that was a hugely like changing period for me because you all of a sudden realize that you're absolutely nobody. You can't deliver anything without inspiring and helping other people to be brilliant in their roles. It's actually all about what your team do. Um, And I think that was quite an inflection point. But back back to your question, I think, yes, I definitely have a few people who really mentored and sponsored me. I think it's both. I have a, a guy who... I've worked with for a very long time I've worked with a number of times at different points through that the organization and actually he was instrumental in me going for this second line sales leader role and I remember sitting down with him and talking about what should I do next and we were talking about first or second line sales leader and I said oh I and I was at that cusp I was like oh, I don't know that does the second line leadership what, is it is that too big is that that feels very scary, actually, because I've yeah. been a rep. I'd never done first-line sales leadership, but I'd done a lot of different types of leadership in the organization. And he was like, no, don't be ridiculous, Deb. Like, push yourself. If you don't do it, no one else will do it. And he really poked me to to go down that route. And he was you know, he was great. And he he was a sponsor as well as a mentor and a, and a coach. But that was such a critical point because that if. That step change, that inflection was quite important actually because the role of a second line leader is a much different job than a first. And so I got the chance to learn more from that job than I would have in a first line sales leader, which I probably would have grown out of quite quickly. I actually worked for him again in a job that I did a couple of years ago when I was the general manager of the UK. And again, like he has been a constant helping kind of helping me navigate through my career I think you need somebody to to push you and I think you need different different people in your village if you like so it's helpful to have a sponsor a coach somebody who makes you feel uncomfortable and he does one of the roles that he plays is also to make me feel uncomfortable and to push me very hard actually on areas where I need to do better and he's very honest with me on when I'm doing well and when I'm doing not as well as I could to avoid swearing on your podcast. <laughs> um, but, yeah, really, like, we can swear really yet. important. <laughs> Maybe. I don't think we should swear, probably not. <laughs> um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. There you go. Go on. So tell me, do you think, yeah, do you think you play that role for, as a people oh, within the organisation? I try to. Yeah, I try to. I play, I invest a lot of my time in coaching people I've got some formal coaching relationships and formal mentoring relationships and I think I play I do play that role for people and I try very hard to dedicate time to doing that because I think it's really important to I've been invested in throughout my career and I think that I want to pay that back and I think that comes in lots of different ways sponsorship allyship mentorship like depending on the people that working Mm. with and helping so that really um, fascinated i suppose i'm being a bit nosy when you're coaching and mentoring people now and i assume younger people or people newer to the industry yeah what are the more common challenges or Mm. areas of focus for them now yeah it's interesting i do think there are different needs and different conversations actually for different people in different roles in the organization there's a lot of conversations around optionality and choices so how do I how do I take hold of my career path and what I get from my role and how I continue to progress so how do I how do I do that what are my options what are the options I have on the table and how do I take the first step in moving in that direction so there's people who are in roles they want to change jobs they want to or oh, they can't they move they can't move or for whatever reason, but they want to find extra stretch, extra growth. How do I get the very most out of my job? How do I thrive? We talk about thriving a lot in GSK. How do I thrive and how do I continue to progress? Like that, that's a conversation that, that we have a lot. And I think the other discussion often, and it's a unique role that I play because I've been in the organization a while, is also how do I navigate who do I network with? Who do I build relationships with? And I think, you know, both of those off ultimately come down to what am I what's within my gift as an individual to take accountability for and just go and try some stuff actually. People, I think at the moment I think when you're in a situation that's difficult or you want to make a change, the hardest thing is actually making the first step. Like one making a choice or making some choices. I don't think there is ever a choice in careers and development and then to actually getting on and doing it people talk a lot because it's scary it's scary trying something new or going out of your comfort zone or making a decision to make a change and so it's often about what's the first step what are some of the things I can do does it matter if you fail we talk about that a lot so who cares? Yeah. What hap- what's the worst that can happen? Like really? So there's a lot that seems at any level of the organization actually, and of anybody that I speak with, those seem to be some of the themes that come out. Just making a step, just make one step, make a choice. If you know, you want to do something differently or things don't feel great, you don't have to fix it all, but what's within your control to do and what happens if you try to make a different, different choice. So as a mentor, and if you think back to when you were say 18 or in your early 20s even when you just joined the industry what do you think would have been that key piece of advice to give yourself do you think oh what would have been my key advice gosh i think this having done my having looked back so i've done a lot of different stuff that has mirandered and connected through luck actually not by not necessarily always by design some design but mostly things have fallen in in a way that was never on the written plan and I think earlier on you feel like you have to plot everything out you have to know what's your 10-year career strategy or I'm sure I've been asked that like an obscene number of times you think my god who actually knows that and I find do something that sounds fun that you think you're going to love and enjoy just you know make your choices based on where you have energy and where you enjoy the other thing that I always try to do, which is the balance to that, is if it doesn't feel scary, it's probably not worth doing. So, you know, for me, my metric of making a choice or a change is, does it sound fun? Does it scare me? Um, and if, it's, if it answers those two questions, I don't really care whether it sits on the plan or not. The other piece of advice that I would have is is really to value and build really deep relationships with. Not just your senior stakeholders, but also your peers, the super smart people around you. Like as I've progressed and worked in different areas, I just find that these organizations that we work with are just full of insanely smart people. And if you if you stop and and learn and listen and engage and invest, you just find the most amazing people around you. And I think, you know, learning that when you come in at You know, you come in at eighteen or whatever it is, twenty, twenty-five. Yeah. You think you, you know. Sometimes I think you feel like you have to know everything, and it, yeah, and it's just not true. So I would have definitely been a bit kinder to myself in in not need, you know, in in learning early on to lean on others, um, in a really positive way. And you, you know, you build relationship, you build bonds through those casual moments of investing in connecting with others that I, I think is is incredibly powerful in the long run. Further on, you referred to failure and talking to people that you worked with about how to handle failure. Can you tell me what you perceive to be your biggest failure and, and maybe what you learned from it? Oh my God, my biggest failure. God, there's so many, isn't there? Because, you know, I feel like there are micro failures every... It's funny. I've spent quite a lot of time trying to reframe the concept of failure in my mind. I suppose there are things I look back and I of think, "Gosh, I wish I'd done that differently," or "That didn't go as well as I hoped." It sounds really cliche, but you learn way more from when things go badly than when they go really well. I think there was there were inflection points. Let's put it let's put it that way. There was you know personal failures where I've not got a job, for example. So I was at a moment where you know I needed to. You know, I wanted to get a new job. I wanted to change. I'd been doing second sales leadership and it was time to, to move and, and do something different. Um, and I'd gone for a job and around me saying, Oh my God, of course you should get that job. Like that's, that's made for you. That's you, you've, we've all been in that situations where people think it's a slam dunk. And I, my heart of heart, I didn't want it. Like I wasn't excited by it. didn't want it. Um, but I felt like I should do it. And uh, and firstly making the choice to go for it was a, was a bad choice because I was listening to people around me more than what I wanted in my heart. I wasn't excited to go into the interview. I just didn't feel like the right thing to do. So that was a bad choice. I'd call that a failing. I, of course, didn't get it because I didn't sound like I wanted it. And, of course, when you're you're recruiting people, you want them to be able to do the job, but you want them to love the job. Like, that's the two components, isn't it? When you're looking for someone. And so a huge lesson for me in for being true to myself and following my heart, only going for things that I really desperately wanted, that were, were really important moments of reflection were around ownership and owning my owning my choices and doing things because they felt right for me, not because I felt like I should. Like that was a yeah. really critical moment. And I went on to do something that ended up being much better for me. I loved it. It was a real turn, actually. I went into something completely different, and that was a great outcome, but I definitely learned a lot from that process. And then if I think about the business failures along the way, what are the key themes? Often they come down to something's gone wrong because I tried to keep everybody happy and didn't follow mm-hmm. my gut and tried to find a middle ground, which was never the right thing to do. Some of it was around not truly valuing different perspectives and engaging deeply. When you do a big project and you've got this great idea and the team's got this great idea and you go really fast at it and you don't, and you don't take a moment to pause and engage people along the way and then you get to the critical kind of governance moment or the inflection point because you've been so head down, you've not truly listened deeply to experts outside of the project group and there have been a few moments one moment in particular recently where actually if I had paused and deeply listened, rather than looking for validation that we were right, we would have found out that there there were some valuable alternative perspectives that would have made a really important difference to the trajectory of the project. I, I think that's been an important learning, particularly in some of the global stuff I've done over the last few years, where deeply valuing difference of opinion is, I think, really important. You've done a lot of work with developing countries, haven't you? Yes. So tell me tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, definitely. No more than happy to. So we never got to the end of the, of the career. So, we've got my, so I've got three chunks. I did uh, sometime in the UK and then got a role in a global team. And by fortune, I got asked to be part of a program and looking at what we do in Africa. Um, and what what our presence was in Africa, and how do we expand access and go beyond the major hubs, the major cities, the major markets? And that entered my kind of time working with developing countries. I actually ended up doing six years working with developing countries. So I did it from a consumer angle, actually, and then I went to Vive and, which is our HIV business, um, and ran Africa and the Middle East for Vive, working on HIV. So. Um, an amazing experience, and I suppose it was such an important milestone because one you know when you work for big companies, we talk a lot about the major markets, we talk a lot about the importance of the u s the importance of europe, etc, and that's from a commercial perspective, but there's so much that we do actually, and if you look at the mission for Gsk it's actually about reaching patients and the patients that need us beyond the major markets are in are in developing countries and it's complicated and it's hard but I suppose my biggest learning from that was just how amazing how much we can learn from countries that don't have as many resources as us you know so if I think about the people that worked in our offices in you know Nigeria, Botswana, uh, South Africa you know Phenomenally passionate, phenomenally resourceful. When you work in a big company in the UK, in London, you've got people to do everything. You know, all the stuff that we take for granted is just done. Then we just get to focus on the branding or the Salesforce execution. When actually you're working in smaller markets, smaller business sizes, less resources, start to learn so much more about focusing on what matters Focusing on getting the right stuff done, not going to perfection. Actually, the importance of community and being part of a community that makes movements and things change. So there's a huge role, particularly with my role in HOV. huge role for activism, advocacy, that that really are the root causes to driving change, to driving phenomenal progress. And it's just insanely inspiring actually and not that we do, you know we have amazing people in the UK we really do we have great great community groups etc but it's just a completely different experience when you're working in an environment where it's not so straightforward getting things done is just a bit harder beautiful people just brilliant brilliant people to work with in, you know, and getting the chance to do that through work was was phenomenal I I felt very privileged to be part of that journey and to try to contribute in some way to making progress and so how long did you do that for so after I left the UK business I went to work in the global consumer organization and I was part of a project called of 2020 which is bizarre we're in now 2022 but the project <laughs> was looking at how do we what How do we expand? What's the right footprint? What's the right presence? There's a lot of work on route to market, go to market model distribution, which was phenomenal. So I did that for a few years. And then I went to Veve Healthcare to run the HIV business for GSK, which was under the Veve group, um, for another two years. That was purely focused on HIV. That was an amazing experience. That was entering a new HIV medicine into Africa, a game-changing. It was a huge game-changing medicine. Um, and so did a lot of work directly with governments and Global Fund and things like that to do early Pathfinder work. It was actually one of my most proud moments in my career. I remember, I will never, ever forget this in my life. So the medicine that I was working on, there was a lot of advocacy around getting access to it. And I remember, and we'd done a huge amount of work to start to accelerate the pace of getting registrations and things like that. And we were at a conference and there were women um, who had done this huge protest to get access to this drug. And they'd had T-shirts made up with the name of the medicine on them saying, we want this medicine now. And they they overtook the stage, overtook the main auditorium. Mm -hmm. And there was, uh, because of some discussions going on with the WHO, and it was, it was a phenomenal moment where you think, oh my God, like I'm working on something that matters so much that people would, that's the advocacy that we see out there. So it was just, oh, uh, it was amazing. It was an, it was an amazing experience. What a moment. Yeah. that's very cool. Your, that's very cool. So your career, <laughs> you've experienced so many different things that are just fantastic. So what, what would be next for you? Do you think? Oh, I haven't done and it, maybe it comes back I feel I feel actually like I have failed at this one and I wish I'd done it sooner so I've, I've worked with all of these amazing countries, I've travelled to amazing places and I've loved it but I've never yet actually lived abroad and that for me feels, I feel like a, that feels like a failing having worked with all these great places and as you say had the opportunity to do these great jobs in different in different types of roles in the organization but not having yet ha- experienced living in a different culture and testing myself to see how I and my family react to that that for me yeah. feels like a massive missed missed moment and I the, the older I get the more nervous I get about not making it happen it's so easy to it's so easy to say now's the, not the right time. Oh it's not the right time. And I think it's as a woman as the lead spouse I I feel mm-hmm. the I feel it's my husband's very supportive but the pressure and the challenge of doing that feels immense. Um, yeah. so that feels like my biggest so it's not a job but that for me is the only that's the clearest next thing that I want to do. An ambition. And it is, when your children get to school age, it becomes an even bigger decision to make, yep. doesn't it? But yeah, it does. Do and there's always reason, There's always reasonable reason. Not the right time for school, yeah. not the right time for husband, not the right country. And I think, God, I'm just procrastinating. Like, you know, genuinely and, having worked in different countries, I genuinely believe you grow so much from ha- seeing and experiencing different cultures. And I'm like, it, oh, I'm just looking at it, knowing I want to do it. And no, we want to do it as a family. But it's, yeah, it feels like a hard one. You see, now I'm going to need to know if she does that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll come back and I, I will do it. I'm definitely yeah. going to, we're definitely going to do it. We just have to uh, Oh, you put it on air now. You put it out on air. Well, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, that's doing my, that's my big job. one. Yeah. Okay. Last question for you. And it's a, is I think it's a big one. What do you think the industry as a whole will look like in five years, oh, wherever you're living? Oh, great one. Um, so I, so it's interesting because the the medicine that I'm working on will be licensed, will be on the market in the kind of five to ten year horizon. So I spend a lot of my time thinking about what does that world, what will that world look like? Um, and I suppose I just, you know, I. I got the opportunity, when I came back from Atleaf, I worked on COVID and medicine for COVID. I think what we've all learned through that process is the way that healthcare is delivered is rapidly changing our expectations of accessibility, instance. Everything's online, everything's remote. We don't go to doctors anymore. We don't, you know we—if we we do, definitely in the UK we might not better get to doctors but everything's moving to a more remote connectivity possible, yeah. and I think there I think there's just this huge shift where we're still trying to f- figure out what's the intersect between this online remote care model which enables more fluidity more connectivity eventually once it's working with the role and the importance of personal connections and um relationships that continue to enforce and inform how knowledge grows, how science is disseminated, etc. But I I definitely feel like we will be in a different world in in the five to ten year horizon in terms of omnichannel, in terms of the way that we go to market, the way that medicines are delivered, you know, I think that the role of physical buildings will will change dramatically. I think the other thing, and I don't know whether it's an industry thing, but I do think it's an important aspect. The role of patients in being part of their the choice and the decision-making in their care continues to enhance. I think the world through COVID, we've all got a lot more interested in what, what's happening in our bodies, what goes into our bodies, what illnesses are we at risk of how do I take personal accountability for care, prevention of getting poorly in the first place, you know, proactive management. So I think that, I think we will see a much more empowered public patient pool, which I think will be interesting to see how we as as an industry evolve our views on disclosing and sharing scientific information outside of healthcare professionals. I think we're gonna, at some point, have to have that conversation again. And then I think, as I said, where healthcare is delivered, how it's delivered is going to be quite different. So we're we're on a huge journey, actually. But I I do think that we're going to become much more accessible. We're going to have to become much more accessible, much 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 more or agile. We are so slow still, um, and I think we've got a big a big role to play in getting more customer and patient centric in how we deliver and disseminate information. Yeah, my opinion. I think we just embrace me. it, right? I, like yeah, I think we set yeah. the vision. We say we say this is the world we're in. We got to get on board, and you know. And I think it's you know, you look at any other industry, it's fully possible. We just have to get over ourselves. I think we we're so entrenched yeah. in, particularly the UK is the worst. But we're so entrenched in process and regulation that we don't see the wood for the trees in terms of innovation and moving. Um, and, and I think there's an opportunity to see uh, more end user perspective on how do we move forwards. Yeah. Yeah. And with but that, you know, in terms of everything being more accessible, it doesn't matter where you live. So exactly. Can, can exactly. Maybe I can just choose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's the just choose and do it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Deb. It's been really good to speak to you. Well that brings us to the end of another episode of This Girl Can. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, do subscribe, tell your friends and post about it on social media, or even better, leave me a nice rating and a review. Don't forget to go to www.thisgirlcam.com to find out who my guest is next week. And you can follow me on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook all under This Girl Cam. Thanks again, everyone, and I will see you back here next week. Bye for now.